Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Michael B. Klassen has been writing and photographing Northern Michigan in newspapers and magazines for over 35 years, creating feature articles about the life and culture of Michigan's North Country. A journalist, historian, photographer, and author with the fascination of the world around him, he enjoys researching and writing about lost stories from the past. Currently, he is managing editor of the UP Reader and is a member of the Board of Directors for the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. In 2020, Michael won the Historical Society of Michigan's George Folo Award for Upper Peninsula History. Welcome, everybody. It's nice to see you. I am not going to make the entire meeting tonight because I have to pick up my son from Bible camp. But my mother's here and Victor's there. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Victor's, Victor's going to help kind of run the show in my absence. But we are here tonight to talk about Lake Superior Tales, written by Michael B. Classen. Classen, am I saying it right? Classen, yeah. Yeah. And I just finished it. My book is still hot. So most of the time I read them so far in advance and then I forget. And, and um, I don't have that excuse this time. I just finished the book. So I want to talk to you about next month. It's a slightly larger book. So if you want to get started on it, um, don't be daunted though. It's like 400 pages, but it's very big, very big print. And this is Susan Purvis's Go Find. Wow. So we'll be doing that next month, um, the second Thursday in August, which is going to be, let me check my handy dandy calendar right here on the computer, the 12th of August. So that'll be our next UP Notable book. And that finishes up year one. Then we're going to move into yes. the year two selections after that. So um, before we turn it over to Michael, does Victor have any news from UPA for us? Well, I'd, I'd just like to announce that we've completed now four out of five audiobooks for the UP Reader. So that's volumes one, three, four, and five are all available on iTunes from Apple or uh, audible.com. So if you don't have time to read a book, listen to it while you're exercising, cleaning your house or driving uh, to work. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. I know here at the library, the um, UP readers go out a lot. They request it a lot and people really enjoy them. So those of you who are listening, has anyone read a UP reader yet? Well, there we go. Oh, time to do it. Ah, there's Your all homework. kinds of neat. They're really, yeah, your library should have them. If they don't ask them to purchase it, um, you can buy. Where can we? Where can people buy the UP? I know Amazon, but can they get it at like Snowbound or any local places? There are. A few We've got it available places. at Island here in the Sioux. I know that. Okay. And. Anywhere in Marquette there, Victor? That's a good question. I'll have to get back to you on that. Okay. But by all means, you know, I, I know like our library has all the volumes. There's five volumes and they're really neat. You know, they've got poetry, they've got essays. I think Deborah, you've had, and, and Michael both, you've had pieces in them before, correct? Yeah. Well, basically mm -hmm. we're the entire staff of the UP Reader. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. It, they're fun. I mean, I actually this year. Yeah, this year I'll have five people on the jury. It's great. Lots of in, uh, lots of uh, input into this one. Good. 
Yeah, I haven't read yeah. one cover to cover yet, but I've, you know, glanced because I that's the worst part about being a librarian. I just feel I feel like I'm in Alcatraz. Like, you know, all the books are in front of me, like San Francisco, but I have no time to read them. I can't get to them. You know, I have to I have to work. But um, <laughs> anyways, the UP reader, by all means, I think those of you listening should give that a shot because it is, and it's right even in the back of Lake Superior Tales. There's an advertisement for it. In the back of my That's car. right, and we're accepting uh, submissions for volume six right now. So if you have a short story or a funny tale from your childhood, uh, you just have to join Yupa, and you can submit your work. Be in the next UP reader. Thank you. Okay. Well, I guess without any further ado, um, it's it's nice to see everybody. Hi, Kay. Hi, Carolyn and Les. Hi, Margaret. Um, the others I think I've said hi to, and those, I, some of you I can't see, but hello. And Michael, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your book? Sure. <laughs> um, Give my hand. I, I, I've been writing um, about the UP since probably about 1983. Um, I started out doing... Um, freelance journalism for magazines and newspapers, writing about just about anything I could find about the UP. And I was able to actually make a living um, as a freelance writer. And so I've always been able to write full time, which is difficult to do. But over the years with when I first started out, um, I picked up on the idea that there wasn't much being written in magazines and newspapers about the Upper Peninsula. Um, pretty much everything I picked up was devoid of anything north of Houghton Lake and Gaylord and, you know, that kind of thing dealing with the state of Michigan. So I started sending stuff in and I pretty much sold everything, everything I wrote just by virtue of the fact it was about the about the Upper Peninsula. Um, I tried to, the, the big thing that I always made sure was that I gave them too much. So when it came to editing, I didn't care. It didn't make me feel like somebody was tearing apart my work or butchering it or anything like that. It was put out there for them to use however they felt they needed to use it. And so, Right off, you know, right off, I've uh, kind of got past that bit of people being concerned about what they, you know, what people take apart and take out. None. And then, from what I was able to do was to take an article that I would write for someone, and then tailor it to another type of magazine, and then tailor it to another type of magazine, sell it, say, locally then virtually rework the same article and um, sell it regionally, and such as um, start out doing something for the Mining Journal in Marquette, then sending it off to say Michigan out of doors, then sending it out to Midwest out of doors, and then to a national publication. It's a kind of basically doing a self-syndication of myself, which worked really quite well. Um, I started writing things about, you know, going to DNR meetings, different things like that, really learning about the outdoors and what um, really the UP was all about. 
And it got me into a lot of different places and able to do a lot of different things that um, most people are unable, you know, don't do just simply because I stuck my nose into it and started writing about it. Um, I was able to ride with the UP mushers on the first two UP 200s, uh, follow the whole thing around. Um, I've been on a ship to Duluth on a U.S. frigate um, where they dropped a uh, wreath off over where the Edmund Fitzgerald went down. Um, so I ended up riding on a frigate from Sault Ste. Marie to Duluth, which was really a lot of fun, but also, too, it was a quite a unique experience. And um, being able to kayak with uh, some guys from Lake Baikal in Russia who came over to create a sistership relationship between Lake Superior and Lake Baikal. Um, all those types of things were, you know, have been over the years been able to do just because I've gone out writing. And um, I've always written about anything that would interest me which, you know, by virtue of the fact that um, I felt if it interested me, it probably interested someone else. And um, that's kind of where I went with a lot of that. So that's kind of been my background over the years is doing freelance writing for, you know, magazines and newspapers, um, doing things like um, the next book I'll be talking about, Points North, is the subject is basically where I went to all these different places across the Upper Peninsula that weren't um, really well known and did columns on them. And I had a column for years called Off the Beaten Path, but my former editor sold the name to Reader's Digest. So Reader's Digest was able to uh, take the name Off the Beaten Path and create a series of books, which of course I was really kind of upset with because I kind of wanted to do that myself. Um, and uh, they, uh, we ended up having to change the name of the column to Points North, which is where the, where the book came from. But with all of dealing with Points North and that type of travel got me into an awful lot of places where I was researching history and you know every aspect of a place that I was at that I could get at. So because of all that research into different aspects of the upper peninsula and stuff like that, every once in a while, something really kind of absurd pops into your head. Hence Lake Superior Tales. Um, a lot of Lake Superior Tales are just moments um, of being out somewhere and just something really ridiculous occurring to me. And that's where an awful lot of these little tales came from. Yeah, Evelyn. Have you seen a what? UFO? You had a couple space encounter stories in here. And I just have uh -huh. to ask before you, you know, have you seen aliens? <laughs> I haven't seen aliens themselves. I have oh. seen a lot of UFOs just from by virtually camping out. You eventually see things that are unusual you know, things that are going in the wrong directions. Satellites are really easy to tell because they always travel in a straight line. You can go be going any direction, but they're always in a straight line. Um, whereas if something turns and it's not blinking like a plane, you got a UFO. <laughs> but mm. I have never, um, never actually had 
what someone would say a close encounter. And I'm kind okay. of grateful for that. I'm not really sure how I deal with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yes, the, the story of the encounter that's in Lake Superior Tales, mm -hmm. um, I wrote that a long time ago, just thinking about the idea of somebody being out there and running into an alien probe and the idea of what might happen with one of those. Um, the other thing about it was when I started writing that story, I felt that if I wrote it in the past tense, it would assume that he got out of it. So the entire story was written in present tense. So it's kind of odd to start reading it until you get used to that style, but it is all entirely in the present tense. Um, it's, it's an unusual little piece of work. And I've had people react a lot of different ways over that story. So it's, it's been kind of fun. I, I really, really like that. It's, it's one of the more interesting tales that I think I came up with just because of the fact that it kind of delves into the idea of the guy kind of being just trapped there and helpless as something tries to check out what he is. So one thing, yeah, Frank. Before yeah, what, what's your favorite tale of all of these tales? <laughs> That's really hard to say, but I got I have got to go with it's actually two of them and they tie together. It's Bullet Shine Silver in the Moonlight and the Wreck of the Marie Jenny. I was um, gonna guess the second one. What's that? I was, was gonna guess Victor? the Marie Jenny. Well the Marie Jenny is the Marie Jenny. Yeah. The Marie Jenny was actually an afterthought. I wrote Bullet Shine Silver in the Moonlight when I was living in Grand Marais. And Bullet Shine Silver in the Moonlight has a lot of Grand Marais residents in it. There are the um, Tess, the character of her, is actually Bessie Capagrosa from the Superior Hotel. And um, the Indian is a friend of mine by the name of Ed Potter. And the Finn is from Marquette. And he is exactly the way he is in the book. So um, the bartender is a conglomeration of two people in Grand Marais who work the Silver Dollar or the um, Superior Dunes there um, at the bar. So it, uh, like I say, it's a, uh, it, it's a collection of things. And at, when I wrote, bullet shine silver they found gold on a wreck off from Osable point and i've written the book i wrote the book on the Osable point lighthouse so i'm really familiar with how many um wrecks and stuff are out there and so when i started writing bullet shine silver i started thinking about where that wreck came from and where it, the origin of it was and so that's kind of after, as an afterthought to Bullet Shine Silver, I ended up writing this prequel, which was The Wreck of the Marie Jenny. And um, that one was written kind of, kind of strangely because I was actually, I wrote the first part of it. It actually was written in three parts. And I wrote the first part of it and published it. And I had absolutely no idea what the second and third part were going to be yet. And uh, I ended up the next month 
had part two, and then the next month, part three, but it was being published originally while it was being written simultaneously. So that was kind of a kind of a strange experience for me to do try, to try and do something like that was to publish a book or publish a story literally on the fly. It was kind of fun. So, but yeah, I think the wreck has probably been the most popular of, of the stories in there. Um, I originally released it as an ebook by itself for 99 cents and it sold actually quite well as a Kindle 99 cent ebook. So I, I knew it was a good viable story. And uh, so, but that's kind of, kind of that. Um, some of the other, some of the other stories in there, the death trip is a true story. It is actually not fiction. I kind that's of published it. What's that? That's my favorite story, the death trip. The death trip. Yeah, that is a true story that yeah. actually happened to us in the Porkies while we were out there hiking. Um, the only thing that may not be quite accurate is some of the dialogue. But the actual story itself, the rescue in the river, all that actually happened to us on, on a backpacking trip. And of course, the wonderful UP weatherman always getting it right. So <laughs> that was, uh, it's kind of one of those things, you know, you can always count on up here. Whatever they say it's going to be, it won't. <laughs> so, but that was, uh, I, I've had a, a lot of people ask me if the, uh, if the death trip was a true story or not. It, it actually is. Um, it's the only one in there that is actually a true story uh, from start to finish. The rest of them are definitely fiction. Things like Moby Pike and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or I mean of the Deer Blind Kind, that uh, those were things I did <laughs> a few years ago. Just like I said, every once in a while, something really stupid will occur to you. And that was one of them. I really got a kick out of writing both of those. Um, but uh, they just kind of occur to you. And once you're off and running with it, that's where you end up. So, but also um, one of my favorite stories in here or is my most recent story, which is the Cave of Gold. Um, I wrote that while I was stranded in a cabin in the Porcupine Mountains during a rainstorm for four days. It was written in about 36 hours. Um, I just, I started out thinking about hiking along a trail and finding a dead guy leaning against a tree. And that was where that whole thing kind of started. And I'm currently doing a research, doing research on, from a historical standpoint, of the idea in Cave of Gold, there's a thing in there of the stockades. And these are true. They existed. They're throughout the UP. I've located five of them so far. And so that whole story of the, um, them going in and having the women at the stockade and stuff like that is absolutely true to UP history. There was one in Nagan, there was one in Ewan, 
There was one in Florence, which is right on the border of the UP. There was one just south of Fayette in a place called Sac Bay. And there was one in Sini. Of course, there would be one in Sini, but um, it, um, it's really one of the darkest pieces of UP history that I've been able to find, this idea of these uh, stockades. And so I intentionally put that in the story as something to kind of tie that all together. It was just something that had been on my mind because I was um, doing so much research in it. The actual real history of those will be coming out in my next book called uh, True Tales of the UP, which is going to be a history book on different bits and pieces of history that I've been able to research, but isn't aren't enough information to make a complete book about one subject. So what I'm going to end up doing is collect them all together and create a book on several of them. I'm figuring there's gonna be probably about 25 different items in there. Um, so it's, and that, that bit of history will actually be in part of that book. So. I've got a lot of good reactions on the idea of doing a history book that has small pieces of history in it. Um, also, one of the other stories that's in there, the big man. Um, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because I'm currently working on a sequel to it, Ooh. which actually picked, which actually picks up where the story left off. Mm -hmm. If you re remember, the very end of the story is somebody coming busting through the door. That's where the next story picks up. And we are going, that story will end up going, it starts out with um, all the whiskey on a ship headed for the Sioux being stolen, <laughs> which doesn't set well because all the bars are out of whiskey. So there's going to be a big mission in the story of everybody in town packing up to go chase down the whiskey um, <laughs> <laughs> to try and recover it. But actually in the bottom of the whiskey is Jean Lafitte's treasure from New Orleans that there's an old rumor that he settled somewhere, somewhere in Indiana and had ran a batch of river pirates on the Illinois uh, River, and um, that's where he retired. So I kind of used that little bit to go, actually, his daughter comes up and robs the boat of all of its whiskey to try and take the treasure home to dad and the family. And that's essentially where I'm going with that tale. But the big man will actually continue onwards with a, uh, with a sequel. Um, pretty much all the characters that are in it will are back, including um, his sort of buddy at the bar, Jake Smalls, whom I get quite a kick out of. Big and Smalls is kind of a thing, so <laughs> can't do anything with it. But it's it's uh, um, it's a tale. It's going to be called Whiskey and Women, and it's going to be spelled M I W I M M E N for women. It's going to be all misspelled because that's the note they leave on the door as they abandon all the bars and had to find the whiskey. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's the big man was a lot of fun to write. Um, the 
idea that Andrew Jackson gave him the gun is a true one. Um, Andrew Jackson became a very big admirer of the very, very first six shooters that came out. And he tried to get it through the federal government that those revolvers would be um, contracted um, for the army. And they couldn't quite convince the federal government to do it. And, but although the Texas Rangers actually started ordering some of them, they kind of picked up on it. But the idea that Andrew Jackson really liked these guns and got several of them for people that were close to him is, is true. And so I kind of use that as where Biggs gets his firearms advantage is with Andrew Jackson and the guns. So, but that I did a lot of looking up on it. And I even had a guy send me a letter telling me that this is impossible, that, you know, revolvers weren't invented then. So I had to send him back a letter showing him exactly where they were. And Andrew Jackson was in you know a fan of them and all of that so i've actually had to argue this point so it was a it's kind of a neat little thing but stuff like that i just don't tend to i don't throw things like that in there without actually being able to back them up somehow you kind of gotta <laughs> i've had people complain about the most benignly strange things well, anyway do we have any questions Michael, what's your favorite period in UP history to write about? Is it that around Andrew Jackson time or, or later? Yeah, I kind of like, um, I'm really fond of the pre-Lax period. When you go back to the Voyagers mm. and the Natives and um, all of those, those types of eras, um, you, you can do a lot with them, particularly with the fact that um, you know, you have more legends that you can play with, more um, of that type of story that hasn't been, you know, that really hasn't been established. And one of the things that I've always kind of felt is, um, particularly over here, is there's an awful lot of focus on the Locks era. And we tend to forget um, that there was 200 years before that going on here. Yeah. And I really enjoy doing the research on that, that time period because, it, because it's just kind of fascinating. Voyagers and you know, guys who can paddle from one end of the UP to, to the other in a day and a half kind of fascinates me. I mean, that's like, mm -hmm. I'm a paddler. I don't kind of work that takes. <laughs> it's, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, that's a lot of fun stuff. And I really get quite a kick out of that, but also too, you know, the different native lore that you can come up with. Um, the uh, the um, idea that you had to really be so incredibly hardy to be able to survive here. You know, I mean, you have to be hardy to survive here now, let alone <laughs> you do. I mean, you know, sticking out a winter or, you know, try, trying to do any type of sports and things like that when you get outside and you spend time, 
you realize exactly how rough some things were around here. I've stayed in some of the most remote wilderness areas that we, we still have here. And uh, you learn real quickly that uh, um, you can be awfully inept real quick about whatever is going on, whether it's weather or, um, you know, getting, getting lost in the woods. I used to be on EUP's search and rescue and people get lost all the time. And it's easy to see, you know, it's um, walk out the woods, turn around and look at what you just walked through. It looks completely different. And there are very lot of times that you have a tough time um, navigating around up here, even today. So I, you know, when you start looking back on those old days and how absolutely, you know, rough they were, I have, I, I collect old history books. Um, I recently posted on my blog an account of the first early days with Peter White and some of the stories he talks about now how and he has this thing in there where he got lost and he talks about how easily it was for him to get lost in the snow over by Barraga and Lance as he was coming out of the Keweenaw it's you know the life here was incredibly brutal um, you know we all hear about what it was like to try and settle the west um, this was just as extreme or much more. And for the longest time, this was the West. And a lot of people don't realize that either. We were the original Northwest territories here. Um, before um, the, the uh, opening of the Western United States, this was the, this area, there's a thing called the Northwest uh, Pact that, um, you know, that's what it includes is Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. And, uh, you know, at that time, after the Louisiana Purchase, we were the we were the frontier, and everyone, the Great Lakes, was the the superhighway of that time, and they all came through here, heading west, out Lake Superior to Duluth, and off into Minnesota, Dakotas, up into Canada. Um, it was a huge migration. Uh, one of the neat things about being a historian is that in the local papers here, they had a thing called comings and goings in the paper, which would list every person that got on and off a ship in the Sioux, which is literally virtually anyone who would have gone into Lake Superior Basin because everybody has to go through here. We were like the independence of Missouri of, you know, of the Great Lakes um, because that's basically it you'd come here and head west and so it's you know it, it it has a lot of incredibly intriguing stories here not just historically but certainly with your own imagination as well you know the place is full of it it's one of the things i've always felt that more people should be writing this type of fiction about the upper peninsula because we are the uh um because we are the, you know basically the wilderness so what is that you're holding up there, Kay? I can't quite read it. I love the death trip. They were already. Yeah. 
They were. <laughs> yeah, it was a real eye-opening experience, trust me. <laughs> but that's, you know, I, I've always felt that uh, the Upper Peninsula is highly underrated for the type of stories and whatnot that um, we have, and very few people write about them. Now we're starting to see a little bit more of that, in, you know, in, over the last few years. But um, you know, people will write history, but they don't look at it as a um, base for good fiction. And we really need to change that. And I've, you know, I've always felt that we've needed to change that because we do have such wonderful stories. We look, you know, you look at um, the Michelin Mackinac area. You look at, you know, coming up the St. Mary's to the Sioux. The Sioux is one of the oldest cities in the United States. And we have a history that goes back to, you know, pre-colonial or back to the colonial days, to the, you know, easily to the 1600s for the Europe, you know, for European influence and close to 10,000 years for Native American influence, you know, just in this one spot. And this is one of the few places in the Upper Peninsula that the Native Americans would stay through the winter um, because of the fact that the rapids here were open and they were able to go fishing and still do their functions um, for food and such, unlike the rest of the Upper Peninsula, the tribes that were at like over by Nagani and Marquette um, Munising, all of that would migrate to Lake Michigan annually. There was a thing called the Grand Island Badenoch Tra Trail, which we still, to this day, the DNR keeps up for travel. Yeah. Um, it, uh, they migrated seasonally back and forth. So they didn't, they had no permanent home on Lake Superior. And I don't blame them. It makes perfect sense <laughs> to me. Um, having lived in Grand Marais for 10 years and realize exactly how brutal that lake is, it just shows they were a lot smarter than I was. <laughs> so I, um, I really, you know, I really have been trying to encourage the idea. I'm really happy to see more authors use the UP as a basis for fictions, you know, such as Karen Dion doing the her, her books. Um, Steve Hamilton's been doing it for a long time. Joe Haywood's got one of my favorite series with his Woodco Woodcock series. Um, mm -hmm. But that's, you know, that's kind of what I'm talking about is where you take all this. Um, you, you could do, and I've, I've thought about this a couple of times, except it's such a massive project. You could really do a very nice James Michener style story on the St. Mary's River be running between Mackinac Island and Sault Ste. Marie. It would, you know, you could dig into that to a point to where um, you could have just an amazing, amazing story all the way up till now. The, and you could do that anywhere in the UP, but particularly through that section, it goes so, it goes so old and so long that uh, you could have a mega series out of that. Um, just by trying to reenact that history. So it's, I find, you know, I, I've found the UP really a fascinating place for possibilities for fiction and short stories and novels and all that sort of thing. So, 
Anything else we can talk about here? <laughs> Any other questions? Well, this is not a question really, but I noticed in your book that you have the um, Peter White special lemonade punch recipe. And um, yeah. And I, I also read something just um, last week. I think it was um, the book about the um, trial of um, Theodore Roosevelt that was held in Marquette. And I think yeah, that's, I wrote that book. Well, that was really, really interesting because I just finished a, a book on uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And, uh, but I noticed this recipe was in there also. And my question kind of is, is it just out in the public domain or? No. Well, yeah, it's out in the public domain. Um, I've taken it. I can actually show you this here. This is a book called The Honorable Peter White. Oh. It's a biography of Peter White. It was written about 1900. And this is a first edition copy of it. Wow. And it has just a ton of information in it about the Upper Peninsula, particularly in the footnotes. Um, the footnotes of the book have very, very little to do with Peter White, just for the record. It's just random, strange history out of nowhere. If you pick up later editions, it has all been wiped out. It does not exist. Um, in this book is the recipe for the Peter White Punch. Is that where it, and, the original recipe for it from there? Yes. That's where that comes from. And the reason it's in the Teddy Roosevelt book is because George Shiras was the son-in-law of Peter White. Right, right. And he was in the Peter White house. And so um, I spent a little time talking about that the idea that that's where it was because originally when um, in Marquette, when the Roosevelt trial was written about, um, it was said that he stayed um, in Fred Reed's home's Superior Heartland. He talks about the trial a little bit mm -hmm. and he has the place that he stayed wrong. Um, there were several things in there that I found that were not accurate. And so one of the reasons I put a lot of that stuff in there is to set the record straight. Okay. Um, several of the <laughs> photographs have been misidentified, such as um, I had seen an article where they had taken the um, pictures of the Spanish-American war vets yeah. and labeled them the jury. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that one. Yeah, I just read it last week. Um, did you ever make this punch? No, I never have. Have you know? Do I you never know have. That has. I mean, that'd be kind of a unique thing for some kind of a festival uh, in March. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we actually ought to do that for one of our conferences or something for I the picnic or whatever. Cool. I mean, it's like it's, when I saw it the second time, I thought, oh my gosh. I mean, that should be uh, out there, if, being that you do have the original and that Peter White actually preferred this for his party. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, I think that would be a good idea. Yeah, I do too. I think it'd be a lot of fun, actually. It'd be kind of an expensive punch, but... <laughs> it'd be worth it. <laughs> well, yeah, it'd be worth it. I'm not saying it wouldn't be worth it. 
Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, I just, so you, you wrote that story about the trial of Teddy Roosevelt. I did. You know, there's only one thing I don't like about the book. I love the book, by the way, because I had been reading and researching is the paper is um, it's um, shiny kind of like, at least in the edition yes. I have. And I found it hard sometimes to continue reading. I'd have to put it down and then pick it up, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I like the book. I mean, I, I really like the book. So anybody that's you interested, know, we, well, should read. Well, we, we were really lucky, Gee, because probably 15 of the photographs that um, are in that book are never before seen pictures. Um, we, fo- we found a copy of a photo album that was in the back of the vault at the uh, Marquette Regional History Center. And it was basically a family album of George Chiras. And the person who was helping me dig out the research in there um she said well i think we got a few pictures in this you want to see them well duh of course yeah. you know what I mean? and she started bringing them out and they were of nothing but him there at the trial oh. pictures of the peter white house the pictures of yeah. them around the peter white house the picture of him standing there with the dog's derriere and the little kid those are yeah. all from george Sharris the third's uh family album yeah. And those are all never before seen pictures of Theodore Roosevelt in the UP. Well, if somebody would read that and, and look through those, it brings to mind uh, how it seemed like Marquette was much more kind of a in, important place than we put, than we give it. I don't think people think of Marquette, but for Teddy Roosevelt to have been there two or three times and to have that trial there, I the center of the nation must have been looking at Marquette. Uh, so, actually, the center of the world was looking at Marquette. Well, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, read the book. Yeah, you're correct. They, that thing was really, really covered. But Marquette has always been one of those kind of places that has attracted um, unique individuals. You know, we have Cyrus McCormick, who had his McCormick track. We've got the Huron Mountain Club, which has 50 of the richest families in the nation. Granite Loma, when the Kaufman's on it, was one of the richest families. Buffalo Bill brought his Wild West show to Marquette. Um, There are a ton of things about that town that I think are underestimated a long way. And again, it's another one of those things where um, it kind of gets lost to the past that you know, this was that active of an area here and that, you know, it was that well known and people of note were spending a lot of time here. Now, there, there was a thing years ago that the Historical Society in Marquette used to reiterate, and I have no idea why, because they had no evidence of this, that the Northland Hotel, which is what we now call the Landmark, um, it was almost it was almost brought down by the wrecking ball, but years ago the Marquette Historical Society said that they felt that Lincoln's widow came here to recuperate from the assassination. There is no evidence of that anywhere, including in Washington documents and that sort of thing. Um, but I still kind of wonder, 
you know, um, because they, they were throwing that out there for a long time. But it's, again, there's no real evidence of it anywhere. It would have been something she would have kept secret. It was something that they would have kept quiet. But at the same time, again, there's still no, there's no documentation anywhere that says she did. But it's always been a story around there that she had. And so, you know, kind of take those things with a grain of salt. But at the same time, you, do, you just never know. But like I said, Marquette, once it was established, um, you know, kind of between it and Calumet, those were the two most active towns on Lake Superior, other than the Sioux. And the Sioux had, had to be, just be by virtue of the fact that we have all the ships going through, you know, historically forever. And so, but, um, you know, Sioux St. Marie itself, Teddy Roosevelt spent time here. Of course, we had Chase Osborne here, who was, you know, Michigan's governor. Um, the only governor ever from the UP. We, you know, there are a lot of things about the Upper Peninsula that, you know, the wealthy and well-to-do have always played here. They've always had their fun here. You know, they've come up. I still can picture Cyrus McCormick going back to the McCormick Wilderness tract with a whole entourage of almost, I almost have the image of an African safari heading back into the um, heading back into the wilderness of all of them, heading back to his cabins and his, uh, his lake back there and whatnot. And I think they had like 10 log cabins on that lake there in the wilderness tract. And the reason that he built that was because of the fact they wouldn't let him into the Huron Mountain Club. Same thing with Kaufman and uh, Granite Loma. They wouldn't let him into the Huron Mountain Club. Kaufman was Jewish. So he was a no-no right from the start. Well, you know, one um, of the things I think about that whole thing is that I think we do a real injustice to our young people because I was born, raised in the UP, and I never had any UP history in school and never heard about any of this stuff. And you would think that we'd have one grade or something where we would tell some of this stuff to our kids. It just um... that would be I, I would think so too you know uh, local history is one of the things that is so overlooked everywhere in my mind yes, um, yes. you know we very very rarely think of our own hometowns as historic or the things that people in our town did as being notable when it is everything you know I mean you see, you start really digging into it. Everybody's lives had adventures and tales and things like that that evolved into the you know the history that we have as a whole. Deb, you wanted to say something. Debbie. Yeah, um, I was going to say I think there's more emphasis. I think there is now more emphasis on UP history in the schools than there used to be. I mean, I remember growing up, there was nothing except yeah. what your parents told you. Yes. And, yeah. uh, but now um, I, I've lost count of the number of UP and Copper Country schools that use my book, Living on Sisu, every year in class. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's more now than there used to be. But yeah, it's still pretty lacking. Yes. Well, I think, and I, I think it's taken a long, you know, certainly taken a long time to even come to a small amount of that realization. I mean, most of us realize that 
um, certainly that this region is historic because of the Great Lakes, the lighthouses, the shipwrecks, the mining, you know, all of that type of thing, but it's still not looked at as the um, center of importance that it really was. And I think that's something that really needs to really needs to change. And then the only way it's going to do it is for people like us. Now you you just published you know your superior tapestry, which gets out there in front of people a little bit yeah. more of the UP history too. And you know, I, I'm doing you know, I've been doing the same thing. The more that gets out there and gets in front of people, the more people start to realize that um, that you know the UP really is that center that it used to, you know of it of historical importance that it used to be now you know it um from time to time you know the people will come up to me and um often ask me you know why you know why the up and it's just look around you know everywhere you step up here there's a ghost town there's an abandoned mine there's you know, I mean, there's something. There's a shipwreck along the shore. There's the place that's littered with history, literally. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of neat. And yes. you know, once you start asking those questions and start digging out those tales, you really find you know you really can find something. You know, all those years that I you know was freelancing and stuff, it you. The reason I was able to do that is no one was focusing on the UP. I wasn't that great a writer. When I first started out, I stunk. I'd always go back to what the editor um, took out of my stuff and tried to learn from that as to what I should have done and what I shouldn't have done. And, you know, it takes time to evolve that. But the subject matter was important enough that people felt that they would work with it, which is where, you know, I was able to actually you know, pal over into a real writing career. And, you know, I've always felt that the UP itself is the commodity. You know, we have so many people out there that are, you know, well, misplaced, you know, displaced, yeah. other places, you know, um, that still want to I've, e I've even noticed in, right, I've even noticed in the, um, Michigan History Magazine and the members thing, Chronicle, at least, I, I haven't actually figured it out, but at least 75% is downstate, not UP. Mm -hmm. Every time yeah. I get another magazine from them as a member, I look through and out of six or seven articles, one or two are UP related. Mm -hmm. If that, you know, you and, and, and I agree yeah, with that. That's that. a lot of it. You know, we that's one of the reasons why you promote the idea of doing this is to, you know, get out there and um, start digging these stories out so that, you know, more not only people realize what the importance is, but the stories need to be told. It's just as simple as that. You know, these, these stories of survival and struggle and... Um, carving towns out of the wilderness and, you know, creating fortunes out of nothing. You know, they're as relevant as anything else and anywhere else. And, you know, in my mind, they're even more so than an awful lot of other places. But, you know, that's one of the reasons I like the UP so much 
is the fact that uh, um, it's got all these stories and all these things to just about everywhere I go, you know, you'll see something, you'll sit there and wonder about it. You know, what was this? Why was this? What, you know, and that's, you know, that wondering is what ends up, re, you know, leading you to stories and books. It's, uh, but I, I do think that, you know, it, the, just the upper peninsula itself is its own, um, its own attraction. People will literally take a look at, you know, if they know about the UP, if they've been to the UP, they want to hear about it. And they will, you know, they're willing to listen to just about anything um, because there's so little of it. You know, when I was out in uh, New Mexico, I was really quite surprised. I could tell people I was from the UP and they knew where that was at because they had so many people end up, you know, in those places from these areas that you know we're, we're much more common than you think and so consequently those are why um i think a lot of the up-and-coming up books are really selling well is because there are so many people from up here and have been up here or have experienced up here scattered all across the world and it's not just the u.s they're everywhere i mean we could you can talk to anybody who runs a tourist business here and they will tell you they have met people from everywhere from China to Russia to, you know, I've, we had a bunch of Russians come through Grand Marais and we're all asking, how the hell did you even find this place? You know, it, uh, it, it's, it's a lot of that, you know, this place has its own mystique and its own uh, appeal. And that's, uh, certainly something that can be used to um, a writer's benefit. I say when I first started looking for freelancing, there wasn't any of it. And, you know, and one of the reasons that um, I started, you know, we worked with the UP Reader um, talking about UP, UP notable books is because of the fact that when you look at the downstate notable books, nothing goes north of Claire. Unless your name's Jim Harrison, and that's it. You know, it's all university presses, and it's all about Detroit or Lansing or Grand Rapids. Um, there's a lot more to this state than those places. You know, so we thought we'd get some recognition to somebody else for a change. Anything else that we can come up with here? Anyone who's not uh, asked a question yet? There's a couple people. Ah. Um, yeah. Oh, Mike. Hi. Hi. I lost my video here. So, hi. Nice seeing you again. <laughs> uh, you this too. was really interesting. I'm impressed with your knowledge of UP history. And uh, I love the UP, I love it here. And it's uh, everything you've said is is an inspiration. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I know Evelyn. Yeah. Hey, mom. Before Evelyn left, she said I was supposed to ask you about Florence, but I think you kind of mentioned it when you were, you know, talking about this new book you're coming up with. Right. That was that was the whole thing about the uh, stockades. Yes. Her and I sat down and had a, had quite a conversation about that when I was in Crystal Falls. Okay. 
um, we, we were talking about the idea of those being out there and trying to historically hunt them down, which has not been easy. One of, the, one of the things you'll find out about doing history in the UP is that a lot of things are buried on purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can't get a single person in, this, in the Sioux here to admit that most of the families here made their money selling booze across the river to Canada or bringing booze across <laughs> during, the, during Prohibition. You know, they, they will not admit that. Or there are a lot of uh, families that started with uh, grandmas that were work- that were working ladies in the local bordellos, and you know every town had dozens of them. I don't care where you are; they were everywhere. And rarely does any community admit to any of that. So it makes it really hard to dig out the truth, to find out these stories, and. That one about the, the ladies being kidnapped into the stockades. Um, they used to go down to the farms in Illinois and Indiana and they would steal women off from the farms as well as they'd steal natives off from the reservation. And they would put them in these stockades and then they would proceed to torture and break them in the most horrendous ways. I mean, just frightening stuff that they would do, do to these ladies to get them to prostitute. And um, it's really one of the darkest pieces of UP history I've come across. And the group that started it, the, or the, one of the people that were basically in charge of it, was a preacher and his daughter. The daughter was the one who really ran a lot of the bordellos. And it is said that they had a range of 500 miles in every direction. Ooh. So there, you know, these things were all over. And since I've been able to confirm more than one of them from a couple of sources, um, including Chase S. Osborne, he writes about um, one of the one that's in Florence in his book, The Iron Hunter. If you read the first chapter of The Iron Hunter, it'll take you into one. And it is really I mean, it's mind blowing to read it. And his credibility in my mind, the fact that he was um, governor, head of the news, you know, started our newspapers here, our banks, all of that. I feel he has a considerable amount of credibility in this story. And so that's really reading that story is what made me take off looking for these. He gives names, he gives places, he gives some dates. So I've been trying to correlate what Osborne said to finding what these, you know, where and what these stockades were um, exactly. And uh, it's going to be a rather interesting ordeal. I've found, I think I've got my last link, which is over in Nagan. I was over the historical society there and they have sent all of their paperwork and stuff to Houghton because it all got moldy during the COVID pandemic. (laughs) So they have, they're trying to get that material cleaned up before they lose it. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I feel, you know, that's kind of, kind of sad, Um, but it will be, I won't be able to get into finishing that end of the research until I think the end of July. So, but I am kind of, you know, I am really digging that out. 
um, because it did shock me so so much that that was going on. I never really thought, you know, I knew there were, you know, there had been bordellos and things like that, but I didn't realize that they had gone to the point of um, basically kidnapping kidnapping them and turning them into prostitute prisons. So it's a very bizarre idea to me. This is, is this going to be well, just one? Sadly, there's plenty of that going on today. I know that. There's, there's it relates to the loss of the Native women. Going on today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So your, your new book that's coming out, do you have any idea when that's going to come out or is it, and this is just going to be a part of it or? This will be a part of it. Okay. There will actually be about 20 to 25 different things in there that I've uh, worked on over the years. Pirates, um, <clears throat> I have two pirates that are gonna be in there. Um, I have a story on how they tried to build the Huron Mountain Railroad from Champion to um, Huron Bay. And the train ran once and flew off the track and that was the end of it after about $5 million. And uh, um, I think there's probably Ten to 15,000 people died of typhoid making it. Wow. Um, it's really quite a wild story. Um, I also have a story on some of the lost gold mines north of Marquette that's going to be in there. Um, all sorts of different little, like I say, little things that really, I couldn't find enough information to make an individual book about. So I'm just going to make a book about all the little bits and pieces into one. So, and I expect, I'm hoping to have this done as soon as I'm done, as soon as Aunt Noggin gets their stuff back. Okay. There's three stories in there that I'm working on. I need the information from Aunt Noggin. But I did stop over there. At least the historical society actually survived the pandemic. There are several yeah. that didn't. And it's been really, really hard to try and locate any type of information from some of these smaller historical societies. A lot of them are, have shut their doors for good, which is really, really too bad. Um, it, it'll make it hard to do, you know, not only hard to do research, but also to, you know, little community historical societies are kind of, in my mind, lifeblood of guys like me. So I'm, uh, I'm really kind of sad to see a lot of that happening. Yeah, I think we'll well, support your local historical societies. <laughs> <laughs> all right. On that note, we will call it a night. Thanks, Michael, for, for sharing your time and energy with us. And thank you on behalf of Evelyn and the Crystal Falls Community District Library and the whole UP Notable Books Committee. And we look forward to seeing everything that you're going to write real soon. <laughs> Yeah, I know you are. <laughs> it won't be long. For anybody who doesn't know, I'm a publisher. So that's my go. publisher. So. You've been watching the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. To join or for more information, please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com. <laughs>